And did you see the other thing last night that I saw, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken in Germany? <laughs> no. What? They sent out a tweet recommending people to bought a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken to celebrate Kristallnacht. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's what ha- comes of having 12-year-old people doing your PR, I think. It's Friday, November the 11th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darrett, Dutch News contributing editor and SUV botherer, and with me today is the editor of Dutch News, Robin Pascoe, who is apparently the new Molly. I don't know how you feel about that, Robin. I've got my doubts, I have to say. I think that would be very insulting to Molly. I could never step into her shoes. I'm hoping you don't kind of replicate her her florid language anyway, at any rate. Of course not. I'm very restrained. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Paul is still Paul, but he can't join us this week because he's too busy destroying all his Donald Trump memes before he gets banned from Twitter. Good move, Um, that one, I reckon, on his part. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, the whole uh, Trump comeback seems to have uh, fizzled out, which uh, I think we should all be thankful for. Excellent news. Excellent news. Yeah. I think I said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that I discovered on Twitter that however kind of insightful and erudite you tried to be, nothing flies like a really obvious crude joke. And uh, that happened again this week where Robert Chessel, who's a journalism lecturer in Groningen, is he? Yes, yes, that's right, Robert, yeah. He, he'd um, retweeted a picture of a um, somebody who parked an SUV in a Dutch city and obviously in a very, one of those very tight parking spaces that we have here uh, because there's not much space. And uh, it was sticking out, blocking the tram lines. And uh, there was lots of, uh, you know, obviously op-hef about it because one thing is absolute um, uh, anathema in the Netherlands. Uh, traffic is to block the trams. So uh, I think I sort of uh, threw in a, uh, a line about um, the, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with an SUV is a good guy with an SUV. And um, yeah, uh, that uh, got got a lot of traction. So that was uh, the, the highlight of my week. Oh, that's exciting, Gordon. It's just one of those things where you just—it's just literally a throwaway remark, and then you think uh, all the kind of times that you try to analyse in depth what's going on with the government's asylum policy or whatever, and it's complete radio silence. So, what's your view on those micro cars, the biros or the biros, or have you called them? Sort of forty-five kilometer things that sort of yeah. up, uh, clog up the pavements. Yeah. yeah, I think they're fine if people for people with mobility issues, but um, yeah, if you're just kind of pottering about. I don't know. In in Amsterdam, you're supposed to have um, a license plate now and pay half fees for parking, right. which I think is quite novel. But I have to say, whenever I see them, I get this sort of desire to throw them in the canal. It's terrible. <laughs> I don't know why. It's, you know, it just sort of comes mm. out and I have to restrain myself. But Your kind of intolerance is, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just bursting at the seems. Uh, I'm yeah. afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe if everybody had one, it would uh, it would fix the parking problems. Who knows? Yeah. Well, not in Amsterdam because they're that you know they're going to put up uh, parking prices here again, and they're going to do I a lovely that. thing at night. You know, they're going to make a twenty four hour seven paid parking in the centre to stop mm. tourists sleeping in their cars. But that's uh, illegal anyway, isn't it? To sleep in your car. I mean, if the boas come around and they spot you sleeping in your car, you get a fine. Do you? So, Yes. I don't know. I've never tried it. Well, you couldn't sleep in one of those <laughs> micro cars, could you? Because they're too small. No, exactly. No, you get a really stiff neck from that. But given the two extremes, I think uh, micro cars in general are less offensive than uh, these enormous um, fake pickup truck things that aren't that are too big for the road, but actually not big enough to actually function as a pickup truck. Just bizarre, monstrous things. So, yeah. Uh, I, may, I, still... I may have to agree with you on that one. And I certainly yeah. <laughs> couldn't throw an SUV in the canal. 
No, you, I don't think you could. Um, moving on to the op-ed for the week, which is about um, another form of transport, um, and also another outing for our favourite source of op-ed, which is not Thierry Baudet, it's uh, the wolf, which just seems to be um, the, the only source of op-ed really in the Netherlands at the moment. There's constant uh, uh, debates about whether we should let the wolves in and whether we should kick them out again. Last week, you may remember, Gelderland province said it had a problem wolf, I think um, Problem Wolf, I think, is shaping up as a late contender for Word of the Year, which is one of my highlights of the year in the Netherlands. But uh, this Problem Wolf, it wasn't hanging around on street corners and listening to rap music and vaping, but it was uh, bothering passing cars and a failure looking for treats. So the province announced this plan to fire paintball pellets at the wolf to scare it off. I'm not quite sure what the backup plan was. Uh, perhaps they're going to try laser questing if uh, that if paintball doesn't work out. But uh, this week, the news cycle moved on, pursued by a wolf, because uh, a video popped up on social media of the wolf uh, chasing a guy on a racing bike. Now, the Dutch told them for many things, but once you get between them and their bikes, then um, uh, the, the, the mood changes pretty quickly. And the cyclist uh, in question, Jan Kees Vogelaar, posted a video and said, Wolves are now posing a danger to traffic and children on bikes. Except that on closer inspection, this wolf turned out to be uh, a bit of a red herring. It wasn't a wolf at all, it was a dog. It was a Czechoslovakian wolf dog that had escaped from its home, and this uh, camera footage wasn't shot in the Hoge Failure at all, but on a cycle path in Friesland. And RTL solved the mystery when they spoke to the dog's owner, Elisa, who uh, lives in the village of Donkerbroek, <laughs> uh, the spellingly named village of Donkerbroek, and she said, quote, My children came home from school and didn't shut the gate properly. So, once again, blame it on the kids. But all this left young case with a red face and uh, probably a bit of a donkerbrook as well as uh, oh, cycle away oh. from the wolf. <laughs> so, and that's not the only wolf news this week. No, either. come on, these wolves—they get an awful lot of publicity for the few number that there are. They do. They should probably um, uh, think about sponsoring the wolves. You know, if you're paintballing, you can maybe paint your company's logo on the wolf's back. Something you could, uh, yeah, it would be great advertising. It but uh, the nature minister, Christiana van der Waal, has called for a broad debate about the return of wolves to the Netherlands because she's worried the discussion is getting polarised. And um, it's one of several measures the Dutch government has already brought in to kind of deal with uh, the wolf issue. There's an interprovincial wolf council, or Wolfberat, uh, which has drawn up a national wolf plan, because of course there's always a national plan, uh, with uh, everything calculated to two decimal places. Uh, there's a wolf meltpunt, so a wolf uh, registration point where you can uh, report wolf sightings. And there's a wolf belasting dienst where German wolves can register in the Netherlands for tax purposes. And uh, I only actually made one of those things up. Hmm. Van der Waal says the wolf isn't a foreign invader, but a native species has made its own way back and is helping biodiversity. And she accused people on social media of crying wolf by sharing sensational reports of wolves attacking livestock and approaching people in parks. On the other side of the wolf fence, uh, Caroline van der Plas, the Boer Burgerbeweging, said it's only a matter of time before a wolf attacks a child. Little Red Riding Hood will no longer be a fairy tale. Although we should point out that there is no evidence yet of wolves in the Netherlands dressing up as grandmothers and occupying houses in order to snare passing young girls. I'm sure the Telegraph has got uh, reporters out looking for those wolves dressing up now as we speak, though. Probably, yes. It's extraordinary when you think back, you know, when the first wolves were sighted sort of slinking into into Drenthe, you know, about four mm. or five years ago, everybody was really excited. And now it's like, 
oh my god, we've got yet another animal that we need to control. Exactly, I'm overrun by wolves, isn't it? Yeah, because when the wolves arrived, everyone thought this was great because we had too much deer, we had too many, there's those little ponies in the failure, and they had no natural predators. So I said, oh, that's going to solve the problem because um, now the wolves are coming in. But now it seems that we're now getting a problem with too many wolves and there's no predator for the wolves. So it just seems to have pushed the, the problem one notch up the food chain. Well, it could be it could be slightly to do with the fact the hunting season started, you know. I mean, mm. you know, they're going to shoot another 1,600 deer in the Ausfahrtsplosser. They do every year. Of course, there's always more deer born, so they have to do it all the time. You know, maybe they don't want the wolves to be too successful because it'll take away from their fun in shooting animals. Yeah, there's still the idea of a free slant to have the wolf-proof fence that uh, will be yep. paid for by Durenta, So, It's an excellent idea. I love it. In this week's news, Mark Rutte broke off from the Climate Change Summit in Egypt to a jump on a plane and sort out his party's internal divisions over asylum. We're all going to be working longer but earning less as wages are running way behind inflation. Nijmegen turns out to be the best place in the world to enjoy vegetarian cuisine. And we celebrate a duck success in a World Cup that's untainted by slave labour. As far as we know. But first, this was the week when Mark Rutte took a flight out of Egypt to sort out a disaster of biblical proportions in his own party. The Fefe Day party had been expected to back a law drafted by Asylum Minister Erich van der Burg, who is himself from the Fefe Day party, enabling him to relocate asylum seekers even if it went against the wishes of the local council. Now, the Fefe Day parliamentary group didn't like this idea much for two reasons. Firstly, it goes against their liberal principles of giving local government more autonomy. And secondly, they thought something needed to be done about the numbers of asylum seekers coming into the country. Ritter's intervention on Tuesday secured the support of the 34 Fefe Day MPs and averted a crisis, at least for the time being. But it does raise a lot of questions about the coalition. What concessions did Ritter make on behalf of the cabinet? Where does it leave parliamentary group leader Sophie Hermans? And will the Fefe Day members back the measure at their party conference next weekend, which is shaping up to be pretty fiery. And what does the bill actually say? So uh, the way Eric van der Berg presented it uh, on Newsday this week, it's uh, kind of a carrot and stick approach, uh, with the stick being kept behind the door, as uh, the Dutch like to say. There are more incentives for municipalities to take in asylum seekers, so they'll get a bonus of €2,500 per year for every additional place they create, uh, as long as it's for a minimum of five years. And as van der Berg said, that might not sound like much, but if you can make space for 200 asylum seekers, that's half a million a year, which you can spend on whatever you like. He also says there'll be plenty of scope for councils to share the burden among themselves or to negotiate with the provinces to distribute refugees around the region. And the cabinet will only start getting tough if they still haven't found enough space by September the 1st next year. At that point, van der Burg will be able to identify locations over the heads of the local councils, which is what his party colleagues are unhappy about. Will it work? Well, at the moment, the government is preparing for 55,000 asylum seekers to arrive next year, uh, which is uh, equivalent to the peak of the last um, crisis around the Syrian war about in 2016. So far, they've found 15,000 extra places, so that leaves another 40,000 still to go. And just to give you an idea of uh, what they're up against, uh, when Erich van der Berg recently appealed for councils to find more places for unaccompanied children into Apple uh, Refugee Centre, only one out of 344 municipalities in the Netherlands came back with an offer. So, you know, okay, there's yet this another compromise, another effort. But what about the other coalition parties? Are they going to go along with this? 
Yeah, well, that's kind of the sticking point, isn't it? Because um, Greta's intervention was all about appeasing the FFD, who obviously have always taken a tough line on asylum. Never mind the fact that refugees are living in deplorable conditions into Apple, which got so bad that uh, Médecins Sans Frontières had to step in over the summer. Uh, for them, it's uh, all about the numbers. And similarly, the Christian Democrats, CDR, who, uh, just like the FFD, are worried about uh, losing their right-wing voter base to populist parties like Jain and Twintig, or the PVF, they've also started to get tougher on uh, asylum. So so uh, Vopke Hoekstra, the foreign affairs minister, told his party conference two weeks ago that uh, we can't cope with these numbers. So on the one hand, you've got these two parties that want to stop the number of asylum seekers coming in. But of course, that's something that really needs to be agreed at EU level. There's not much scope for the Dutch government to do anything on its own. The one thing they have done is that they said that uh, asylum seekers now can't be rejoined by their families in the Netherlands until they've been given a permanent place to live after they secure refugee status. The other two parties in the coalition, Deze Zestig and the Christian Uni, campaigned for a more humane approach to refugees, integrating them faster so they can work and start contributing to society. They agreed a compromise back in August, um, which uh, was this deal to restrict the reuniting of refugee families. And that was, at the time, the, uh, the two parties, especially the Christian Uni, said kind of that was about the limit of what they can tolerate. So the question really is, is what kind of extra concessions has Rutte agreed and will those two parties go along with it? And if they don't, what happens next? Now, if you look at the polls, you see that uh, the, the biggest parts in the coalition, the Day, the CDA and Zestach, they don't really fancy an election at the moment. Their poll numbers are well down. But the Chris and Uni aren't a different kind of kettle of fish because they're not a party that's really wedded to the idea of being in power. They just simply want to represent their very loyal voter base of kind of, you know, sort of modern sort of progressive Christians, although they're more progressive on some issues than others. But the point is that they're quite relaxed about the idea of whether they're in government or in opposition. So if they decide that they're making too many prong compromises and just having to swallow too hard to accept whatever the, the, the concessions for the FFD and uh, the Christian Democrats, they might well decide, no, we've had enough and, and walk away. And they have a party conference coming up in two weeks' time where there are already motions on the table saying that uh, if the FFD doesn't honour its commitments on asylum, then the Christian Union will withdraw their confidence in the largest coalition party. So it's going to get interesting, I think. It's also, I think, terribly sad that we've got, you know, the sort of fate of people and where they live based on internal political wranglings and the complexities of the Dutch political system. I mean, it seems to me really obvious. I mean, you, you said that, you know, there are about 18,000 refugees living in refugee centres who should be living in housing. If you can house them... Then you've solved your problem. You know, I mean, if every local authority gave up three or four houses to put families in, it would be fine. There'd be no issue. It just seems, I don't know. I find it one of the most difficult things I've had to deal with in the many years that I have lived here is looking at this mess. And I find it very upsetting. I saw reports today of all these refugee kids in The Hague who aren't getting to school because there are no teachers. So they're not being educated. They're living in gyms sports halls, uh, you know, it's awful. And I can't believe that one of the richest countries in the world and a country that's got a reputation for being so well organised, just can't organise this at all. Yeah, and yet it's an absolute tangle because you have this whole decentralised system of government in the Netherlands. So they have to sit down and negotiate deals individually with local councils and every individual local council looks kind of towards what's happening in their area and as soon as they get the first sniff of people turning up outside 
prospective places to house refugees with banners starting to protest, they get cold feet and they say no. So really, you have this complete impasse. And when you contrast it with what they've been able to do for the Ukrainian refugees who've come in, they don't need to go into Apple, they don't need work permits, they can just do it, and families have just taken them in and they've been absorbed almost unnoticed. And of course, 80% of them have found jobs as well because other refugees aren't even allowed to work. Yeah, you see that this is a very fixable problem, but it just help, runs up against this brick wall that everyone's terrified of... Um, of the far right. Of the far right, yeah. But, you know, if you look, and you've been looking at this for years and years, the far right share has never been... You know, it, there's always a kind of maximum as to how far it will go. Well, you know... Um, the refugee issue isn't the only kind of mess where there's no progress in the Netherlands. Um, pensions, too, are a uh, nice sticky issue here. bit dull, but, you know, pensions are very important. And the Cabinet has confirmed that the state pension age is going to rise in 2028 to 67 years and three months. This comes following an increase in life expectancy. The current state pension age is 66 and seven months but will rise by two months in 2023 and a further three months in 2024, having gone up in stages from 65 since 2013. Are, are you still with me? Uh, just about, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a very sort of Dutch thing. They don't like whole numbers in this country, do they? They, they? they really like to do things by sort of tax rates of 38.16% and all this kind of thing. It's great. And your, and your, <laughs> you know, your pension goes up by €3.47. It's, it's mm-hmm. fascinating. But, you know, the rise is calculated according to some complicated formula, but it's really because the National Statistics Office has said that someone who turned 65 in 2028 will live for a further 21.05, not quite sure that is in months, uh, years. And the government thinks that they can wait a bit longer for their pension. And this rise, by the way, in life expectancy comes despite the high number of deaths among the elderly population during the coronavirus pandemic. So... Yeah, what does this actually mean in practice for people who are retiring either soon or years down the line? Well, it means you won't be able to retire and get a state pension in 2028 if you're only 67. You'll have to wait until you're 67 years and three months. But actually, there's some good news in all this for immigrants like you and me. Because to qualify for a full state pension, immigrants must live in the Netherlands for 50 years. You build up 2% of the state pension for each year. So the increase in the pension age to 67 and three months does mean the likes of us have got a bit more time to build up pension rights. Yeah, especially if you kind of cross the line into another full year, you get another 2% state pension. Exactly. I mean, I came here officially to live in 1989 when I was 30. So if the retirement age was 65, I would only have built up the right to 70% of a state pension. But the extra two years mean I'll be entitled to 74 And the same will go for you, of course. And a lot of people don't realise that when they retire in the Netherlands, they won't get a full state pension because most countries use 30 to 35 years as the sort of the basis. Yeah, but um, the sting of the tale, of course, is that the whole pension system is being reformed, or at least they're trying to reform it. And uh, yeah, that's going to have a big impact potentially on people's pensions as well. right? So so what other things are happening to the pension laws? Happening or not happening, I think, is the question. Um, (laughs) On Thursday, we had yet another long debate in Parliament about reforms. Um, Let me explain, if, if you really want to know. The Dutch pension system is based on three pillars. The state pension, that's the AOVE, the compulsory corporate pension scheme, which is either sector-wide or company-based, and individual or private pension schemes. 
And about 50 years ago, politicians started looking into changing the system, which you know has been considered one of the best in the world for years. But as is usual in this land of compromise, MPs have yet again failed to vote on this draft legislation. So we had a marathon debate on Thursday. We had one earlier. We've got another one coming up next week. The idea is that when the new system comes into operation in 2027, it was, by the way, originally supposed to come into effect next year, workers with a company pension scheme will no longer know in advance how much pension they get. Instead, pensions will vary in line with investment returns and life expectancy, meaning that the economy will have more of an impact on your payout. Now, the government says the aim is to spread the burden of paying for pensions more fairly across the generations. And corporate pensions, of course, will no longer be based on your average wage-related contribution, but on everybody paying the same. Some experts have got their doubts. They say it's risky because, of course, pensions will be able to go up as well as down. And lawyers have warned that it could open the government up to court cases as well, because people who started saving for a pension under the old scheme will suddenly get a new one and have got no idea how much money they're going to get. Hmm. You know, MPs will have another go at voting on the legislation next week, but, you know, don't hold your breath. There are still more hurdles to overcome. But there has been kind of better news recently, perversely, on pensions than there, because inflation has started soaring and interest rates have gone up. Suddenly, the pension pots have actually been able to put up their pension payouts for next year, which in recent years, they've actually lagged behind inflation because their investments haven't gained in value because interest rates have been, you know, well, sub-zero in the European yeah. Union for, for about the last decade. And they have this obligation to keep very high reserves so that they don't go, you know, go bust. Um, they've actually struggled to keep up with even modest uh, rates of inflation. But now, of course, the whole picture's changed. So, yeah, it's an unintended consequence of the current economic crisis is that actually the pension pots are healthier than they have been for some years. Yeah, it's partly because of the, the tough Dutch rules on uh, and keeping ha- and on the reserves that you have to have. You have to have 105% of your pension obligations at the moment. And that will all change in the new system too. And it is one of the things that the pension fund said we need to change because... The current system is unsustainable. We can't keep going because, as you say, pensions have been frozen or have even in some cases gone down over the past few years and they won't go up in full line with inflation. And some of the funds are also waiting to see what happens with the new legislation too before they take a final decision. So, you know, we've got quite a long time still to go before we've got any idea what's going on. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, yeah, hold your breath. I have to say, I'm nothing really notes in this country compared to the UK. As you see, much less pensioner poverty. In the UK, pensioners are seen as poor. I mean, one or two, oh, yeah. some are not, but in general, pensioners are seen as one of the poorest groups in society. Everywhere you go, you have like pensioners get special discounts. They get rail cards, so they pay less money for train fares. They get, so you go to a theatre or even a hairdresser, they have sort of special pensioner offers in the morning. You can see that, you know, people really struggle to make men's meet in retirement. And in Netherlands, people in retirement age, broadly speaking, I know there is poverty in this country, but broadly speaking, are much more prosperous and better off. Well, one of, I mean, one of the things is if you haven't built up a few states, a full state pension, if you've moved here, for example, from Morocco or Turkey and you're only entitled to 70%, you can top it up through uh, welfare benefits. They will top it up to the full amount uh, if you're aware that you have that option. I mean, we mentioned inflation, and uh, there is a lot of uh, inflation around at the moment. Even though the headline rate dipped slightly in October to 14.3%, uh, we're starting to see the effects really bite in people's household spending. And a good illustration of that is the price of eggs. Eggs have gone up by between 12 and 20% in the last year, according to market research, uh, GFK. 
And that's down to a number of factors that have uh, contributed to rising inflation. The cost of grain has come up because uh, a lot of it is imported from Ukraine. Higher fuel bills have pushed up the cost of transporting eggs and chickens. And of course, there's been an outbreak of bird flu, which means all birds have had to be kept indoors and six million chickens so far have had to be destroyed. Bautian Oplat of the Poultry Farmers Association said some farmers are leaving their barns empty because of the high costs and supermarkets will have to pay higher prices to keep their shelves stocked, which of course they then need to pass on to their customers. So it's going to be a very expensive pancake day this year. And my Sunday breakfast scrambled eggs as well. Oh gosh, Actually, yeah. you know, one thing I don't really understand is the hens can't go outside. So how can you still classify them as free-range hens or organic hens if they're stuck in a shed surely I mean they must become cheaper I I don't really get it don't really get it with the eggs but you know okay wages that's the only thing we really care about Gordon wages Wages, yeah, yeah, that's the other side of the coin. Wages, um, uh, they went up by 3.4% in the third quarter of the year, but uh, unions are far from happy with that situation, uh, given that uh, that's a long way behind inflation. The largest Dutch trade union, the FNFA, is pushing for a 14.3% pay rise in 2023. Our members' salaries must keep their values, said Deputy Chair Zakaria Bufangacha. The biggest pay deal struck so far has been for railway workers. The NS is paying staff an extra 9.25% over 18 months, plus two bonuses worth €1,000 each. But that still hasn't been enough to stop them cutting train services this winter because there aren't enough conductors. But there's been more uphef about dodgy numbers. Yeah, um, for two reasons. Uh, firstly, the small businesses have complained that the government support for paying energy bills was too meagre. This was brought in to help uh, businesses that use a lot of energy, like bakers and greengrocers, and you've seen their costs just uh, skyrocket, basically, in the last year. The original scheme said the company needed to spend 12.5% of its turnover on energy to qualify for the scheme, but um, then they took another look at the numbers and they realised they'd made a calculation error, and that meant that um, a lot of businesses that they wanted to help didn't actually meet the criteria. So they've dropped the threshold now to 7%. Now the government has allocated 3.1 billion euros to support uh, these small companies. But that hasn't stopped dozens of bakers already going out of business. In the northern provinces alone, 45 bakeries have shut down in the last month. And RTL spoke to one baker whose annual energy bill, which last year was 30,000 euros, is now 370,000. So how can they justify that? It's astonishing. But, you know, there's a lot of weirdness about the way, you know, these energy prices and energy increases are being are being calculated. You know, we've been yeah. keeping a close eye on our bill. We have a smart meter, although the Leander seems to think that we have solar panels on our roof. And we oh. don't have solar panels, but um, we get money back every oh, month. Good. And, Lucky and you. We, we keep telling them <laughs> we don't have solar panels and we've just given up trying now. But yeah. we've noticed in the middle of the night at about two in the morning, there's a strange little peak in gas usage and we have no idea why. Hmm. But I, I don't believe the CBS figures, inflation figures, because I think they do something weird with the energy prices because it's just over the top. Yeah, they are trying to recalculate the way they calculate inflation because they say that the cost of energy is kind of exaggerated, mainly because when they calculate the inflation figures, they base it on what's the cost of a new energy contract. If you took out an energy contract tomorrow, what would it cost you? And of course, at the moment, the variable rates are very high and there are no fixed rates available at all. But the reality is that about half of people are still on fixed rates that they agreed 
you know, last year or maybe even two or three years ago, when, of course, gas prices were, well, like a fifth of what they are now. So there's huge contrast, basically, between people who are on variable energy rates and people who are still on fixed rates. And when you actually factor that in, you find the overall rate inflation is much lower. So the financier Le Dachblatt did a calculation and said that inflation in August, which was measured at 12%, would have actually been below 10% if a more accurate counting method was used. So the CBS is uh, working on a new system and says it expects to be ready next year. And and by next year, it actually will have negative inflation because it will be comparing with a, I don't know, it sounds very odd to me. I, I Yeah. So that's the thing. You also have to look at what inflation was last year and how yeah. much is increasing is increasing now. And I think it's around about this time last year that we started to sort of push past five percent, and then so obviously in the spring after the invasion of Ukraine, it really went through the roof. So yeah, you're right. In the spring, we should be seeing. And then you get into this discussion of you know, economists say that negative inflation is a bad thing, but you'd think if you're if you're comparing with a an increase of 14 17% then surely a short spell of negative inflation is kind of needed to correct the extreme inflation we saw uh, in the in the spring and the summer especially if the inflation's based on not really accurate energy figures in times of soaring inflation you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket so why not chuck an egg our way or even better a dollar or a euro by sponsoring the dutch news podcast on patreon it does cost us time and money to make these podcasts, uh, much as we love to do so, especially when we've got the heating on, and your contributions really do help us in our efforts to help you make sense of what's happening here in the Netherlands. All our patrons get a shout-out on the podcast and the chance to ask us a question. This week we have a question from uh, Francois Barton, who's now back home in the safety of New Zealand after a trip to the Netherlands, where he said he gorged on good beer and bitterbollen. So, living the dream, I think. Wise man, wise man. (laughs) He's got a question for us about road safety. And um, I kind of found this uh, slightly surprising, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, He was amazed to see us. He said uh, he saw public spaces being shared with no discernible rules or signage. Uh, Even when there was construction work going on, he said in New Zealand, the use of controls, signs and barriers is almost omnipresent. Yet despite all of that, things seem to flow in Holland without incident. So he asks, is the road safety here and workplace safety here? better than the UK or other nations? And is this uh, down to the uh, famous Dutch characteristic of liberal self-responsibility? Oh my goodness. I, I, I wonder if our dear patron has actually cycled here. Uh, I mean, I, I do know that where there's loads of roadworks where we live and everybody just ignores the signs telling them that they'll get fined 60 euros if they cycle mm. there. You just kind of move and people move, get out of their car and move the barricade. I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot of anarchy. Um but maybe that's what works. I don't know. I was surprised. I've got to say, often when they set up roadworks, um, you know, what I tend to find is that, uh, that they put, so post a couple of guys at the entrance of the roadworks and they'll stop people who are trying to cycle on the pavement or cycle on the boards where they've dug up the pavement. But after about two days, they go away and everyone just carries on cycling wherever they feel like because that's the Dutch way. And also sometimes the police turn up on day two and actually find people. But again, on day three, they, they leave and you know, the anarchy is restored. But I tend to think the shared spaces here, I think, is definitely a thing. And I think it's partly because I think everyone learns the rules of the road the traffic rules at school it's kind of really drilled into you right when you're at primary school and children have these kind of cycling proficiency lessons where they learn how, how to cycle in traffic so everyone's i think is quite switched on to what the rules are even if you haven't got constant signs all over the place saying where what's a shared space and i know it's around the back of the station in amsterdam they've got this kind of way this open area where cyclists, pedestrians... It's hell. You take your life into your own hands. Do you really? Because I kind of thought that 
it looks really anarchic, but actually oh, it works out okay, no? It's terrifying <laughs> if you get off a, tro- a, tro- a ferry and you've got to get across. Awful. Go on. No, yeah. no, please. It was, <laughs> <Okay>. no. <laughs> right. Okay, well, my innocence has been... And again, actually, talking through the centre of The Hague, there's a pedestrian area, which is a cycleway, it's a channel, but you don't, it's not actually marked at all. So pedestrians just blindly wander about, will step out in front of bikes, start seeing where they're going. Of course, the bikes are actually belting along uh, in this road that the cyclists know is meant to be a cycleway, but to half the pedestrians, especially visitors, have no idea. And yeah, again, it's chaos. But somehow, I very rarely see someone getting actually run down, I have to say. You'd think it would happen more often than it actually does. I think The Hague might be a gentler place than Amsterdam. Certainly the cyclists are less mad here. The rare occasions when I've taken my bike up to Amsterdam, I feel like I'm withdrawing from a war zone by the time I get home. And I'm just grateful to still come back home with all my limbs intact. I, I sympathise. <laughs> and to the dear, to dear Francoise, you know, come back and we'll take you on a bike trip and yeah. um, then maybe you have a different idea. If you'd like to join our loyal band of uh, happy cycling patrons, log on to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Dutch News NL. Nijmegen Restaurant, the new of Inkle, has just been chosen as the best plant-based restaurant in the world by a jury of experts at the Gastronomic Forum in Barcelona. The new of Inkle, which also has two Michelin stars, was last year's number two in the ranking, which was developed by an organisation called We're Smart, the Green Restaurant Guide. The jury said of the winner... Rarely is the story so perfectly told, the flavours so well balanced, the innovation so truly innovative and the knowledge and motivation of the team so strong as it is here. So, you know, resounding endorsement. Yeah, um, re-endorsement, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Chef Emil von der Stark, who's, of course, delighted with his win, is very passionate about what he does. And he said, more and more people are realising that eating so much fish and meat is harming the planet. And people are willing to adjust their behaviour if there are good alternatives. And we are offering an alternative to that traditional approach. Hmm. And it does seem like um, vegetarianism and um, veganism and all kinds of plant-based eating uh, is on the rise in the Netherlands, isn't it? Because even the new Albertine promo with the postcode lottery is, uh, is for vegetarian food. Well, it actually depends very much on who you believe, because I was sort of having a look at the, at the figures to try and make some sense of this. And... According to the National Statistics Office, CBS, last year, 8 in 10 adults do not eat meat every day and 45% eat meat a maximum of four times a week. Nevertheless, the CBS says 95% of Dutch adults still eat meat. Some 3% eat fish, not meat, 2% of vegetarians, and only 0.4% avoid animal products altogether. Mm, okay. Yeah. But then, if you look at research from New NL in 2019, it says that around one third of the 20,000 people in its poll ate meat every day. One in 10 is vegetarian and 7% vegan. So, to be quite honest, your guess is as good as mine. The only thing that annoys me about all this is if you go into the Albert Hein, all the organic stuff in ours, at least, is disappearing and they're bringing in vegan stuff instead, which is, of course, not the same. I definitely think that the range of uh, vegetarian and uh, vegan products has, has gone up an enormous amount in the last kind of five or six years. You know, you don't, it's oh, not yeah. just like one burger in the corner of the fridge. It's uh, there's a whole shelf of them now. I oh, yeah. encourage people to try I mean, them a, on. Yeah. There's a lot of meat replacement companies have set up a business here as well. They've, they've kind of yeah. made a, a thing about trying to attract them. So, you know, there's, there's a sort of surge all 
all over the shop. No, I mean, it is interesting, but nobody just really seems to know how many vegans or vegetarians there are. You know, I guess it's fitting that in the country of a part-time working, a lot of people seem to be part-time vegetarians, right? So it's a lot of people seem to have included it in their diet, but they'll eat vegetarian once or twice a week, but they're yeah. not ready to give up meat altogether. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what can we eat at the New Vinkel and uh, when are we going? When are you taking us out, Robin, with your huge expense account? Oh, well, I, I need one for to go there, I can tell you. Um, yeah. The restaurant offers a three-course meal for €65 Euros or nine courses for 140 And it makes a lot of noise on the website about his experiments with different methods of cooking and preservation. Now, how's this sound to you? It's a young turnip dish. Young turnip. Young right. turnip is served with grated pickled egg yolk. Okay. okay, pickled right. for three months in brine, apparently, and it goes kind of solid, and then right. it's grated. And it also uses rice, pearl, barley to make a miso-style broth. So, you know, mm. they're, they're experimenting with stuff from all over the world. It sounds quite fascinating, and of course it is, you know, incredibly delicious, so we are told. But as for getting a table, well, it's currently fully booked until the end of February. Sports news now. Now, we had a request from a listener to be a bit more enthusiastic about the cricket team. Which you, I think we, I'm sorry, unfair. Gordon. I have to interrupt you. We <laughs> yeah. have done so much cricket this year. I was going to say, yeah, we've led with it at least the last two weeks. And yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think we've done a ton of cricket. So it's only compared to the Dutch media. And there really was something to crow about this week because the Dutch pulled off probably their best ever result in an international cricket tournament with a yeah, sensational win against South Africa. And it wasn't a dead rubber. The South Africans needed to win to progress from the Super 12 stage of the T20 World Cup per tournament. So it was very much showing the balance. But the Dutch um, uh, really uh, put them to the sword. Stefan Maibra, Max O'Dowd, Tom Cooper and Colin Ackerman uh, all smashed the ball around, scored uh, uh, at least 29 runs each as the Dutch racked up 158 for four in their 20 overs. Ackerman was particularly impressive. I think he scored 21 of his 41 runs in the last two overs uh, in a fruitful tail end partnership with the captain Scott Edwards now obviously a lot of these players are well there's a quartet of a South African heritage or uh, players or players who originally play, who played for South Africa back in the day and now they're getting towards the end of their careers they kind of um, use their Dutch passports to play for the Netherlands but nevertheless it's great development for the sport in this country going back to the match when it comes to the Dutch turn to bowl Brandon Glover another um, former South African I think claimed three for nine in his two overs but I think the real key to this win was some absolutely stunning catching in the field so seven out of the eight South African wickets fell to catches. And the pick of them was probably an over-the-shoulder take by Ruler van der Meerwe to dismiss David Miller, just as the South Africans looked they might, they might be getting back into the match. And that meant the Netherlands won by 13 runs. And that ended South Africa's hopes of making the semi-finals, while the Dutch have now qualified already for the Super 12 stage of the next tournament, which will be in 2024, in the USA and the West Indies. Amazing. Well done, guys. I mean, yeah. it's... It's been very interesting following it all year and just to sort of, yeah, I mean, this is a good way to finish the season on a high note, I would say. So speaking of World Cups, um, Qatar is looming. It is, yes. Uh, the very controversial World Cup tournament in Qatar, which there's been a very muted build-up, I think, compared to previous tournaments. We don't have streets decked out in orange bunting and uh, silly hats and cans of uh, garish beer in the shops. Maybe they'll all appear from nowhere in the next 10 days, although probably not Yumbo, who is still kind of wearing the sackcloth and ashes from that terrible advert about the construction workers. But the opening match between Qatar and Ecuador is just nine days away, and the Dutch kick off the following day. They're in the same group, and they're playing Senegal. 
and Louis van Gaal is due to unveil his final squad later on Friday. How far do we think the Dutch are going to get in this tournament? I've got no idea, actually, yeah. to be honest. I'm more of a cricket fan than a football fan. <laughs> OK, yeah. I mean, I've got to say, when you look at the group, they were lucky enough to get into the group where Qatar was seeded as host nation. So they've got a pretty easy draw. You'd think, I think it would be a bit of a scandal, frankly, they didn't get out of the group stages. And then it very much depends on who you draw in the last 16. But I can definitely see them getting at least to the semi-finals, so the quarterfinals. I think beyond that, it might be... It'll start start to get tricky. Uh, but with Van Gaal in charge, he's obviously very experienced and took them to the semi-finals, which nobody expected eight years ago, which was the last time they played in the World Cup. Um, yeah, I think a quarter-final finish is, is definitely realistic. Well, if they, if they do that well, then we'll have the whole debate about whether we should send the Prime Minister and the King. And I'm sure the supermarkets will be full of orange stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, and then the streets will start to be decked out as well. And then maybe even people go out and watch the game on giant screens, even though it's the middle of November. It's banned in some places, they're not allowed some to do place it, it here. Is. Or, yeah. Yeah, or you have to have those Daisy's and Zestic adverts about slavery, don't you? And yes. During the interview, during half time. Yeah. yeah. Just to massage everyone's consciences. Oh dear. So tell me, how's the era divisi? Well, it's quite, it's quite it's really exciting this season, actually. It's very tight at the top. There's um, only one round of matches to go before the World Cup kicks off, and there's only four points separating the top five teams. And that's because uh, PSV beat Ajax at the weekend. They won 2-1 in Amsterdam in a very bad-tempered game, which uh, ended in a sort of mass brawl between the players. Um, but that means that PSV uh, went top of the table, uh, one point ahead of Ajax, and Feyenoord are uh, also level on points with PSV and behind on goal difference after they beat Cambuur 2-1 on um, Thursday night. Ajax then had also had a chance in midweek to go back to the top, but they could only draw two all at home to Fetissa Arnhem. And also Azad Alkmaar and Twente Enschede are tucked in just a couple of points behind. And um, the big match this weekend is Azet, uh, who are visiting PSV. So things could get even tighter. And these, these four teams are all still in Europe as well? Yeah, we've still got uh, quite a good presence uh, by the Dutch clubs in Europe, although, of course, Ajax uh, have dropped out of the Champions League and added into the Europa League, where they will play Union Berlin in the playoff round. Uh, don't ask me to explain this draw system, but there's sort of an interim round before we get into the last 16. Final order through because they won the UEFA Europa League group. Um, AZ are also through in the, uh, the third tier competition, which is the Conference League, but Ajax have to play in a playoff round against Union Berlin, which would be quite tough for them because Union Berlin are doing very well in the Bundesliga. And PSV have been drawn against Sevilla, which is a nice reunion for Luc de Jong with the club where he played for several years. And he won the tournament in 2020. He scored two goals in the final and he was named man of the match against Inter Milan. So fond memories for him. That's kind of good going, isn't it, though? Four teams still in Europe over it the is, winter. Yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, obviously the only blot on the copybook is that Ajax aren't in the Champions League anymore. But in terms of the overall strength of the Dutch league, it's pretty encouraging. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Robin Pascoe. I'm Gordon Darroch, and uh, I'll be back next week uh, again with Paul Peters. (laughs) 